Well, as we continue in Luke today, because as a church, we've been going through the gospel of Luke. We're doing that because Jesus came and this changes everything. We're just staring at Jesus. We're in awe of him. We love him. Look, as we go through it today, here's something I want to put on your radar. You know that Christian history is littered with the martyrdom of many, many men and women who courageously went to their death because of their professed faith in our Lord. One notable example is Polycarp. Polycarp was martyred in about 155 AD, I think it was. He was a disciple of John, uh, who was one of the original 12 disciples, okay? And in the martyrdom of Polycarp, here is what we read. The proconsul then said to him, I have many wild beasts at hand. To these will I cast you unless you repent. Now, just note this. Repent there doesn't mean like repent and turn towards Christ. It means repent and turn away from Christ. Renounce Christ. And to that, he answered, Polycarp answered, he said, call them then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. But again, the proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts, if you will not repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment, reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. Oh, my goodness. What a stud. I mean, that is the stuff of legends. That's the stuff of leaders. That's the stuff of myths and heroes, and it's phenomenal. Christian history has plenty of stories from men and women just like that who were cool and calm and went right into the fires professing their faith in Christ, ready to meet death. There is one notable exception. And that takes us to our story in Luke today. We're going to be in chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. Look at this. And Jesus, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. (laughs) So here you have Christ. 
in great contrast to the bold courage and grit and steel that we read about Polycarp, here you have Christ. It almost makes him look like a wuss. He's all, he's scared, he's, he's sweating blood and he's trying to get out of it, it seems like. I'll tell you what, side point here, this must be accurate history. This is not flattering to Jesus, and this is not flattering to the disciples. If the early church is making up the Bible, they would never put this in there. Why is it in there? Because it's history. It happened, and this changes everything. This is authentic. And what I want to do is pull out four points from that experience. And the first one is this. You need a garden. You need a garden. All right, let me remind you of the flow of events here. Judas has already arranged to betray Jesus. After that, then Jesus arranged the upper room where he would gather and celebrate Passover with his disciples. And that's where he transitioned Passover into communion for us. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Then there were a few tidbits of teaching. Pastor Jared covered one of those last week. I'll tell you, there's a few things we're skipping over. We'll backfill. We'll come back to it. We'll get it. Don't worry. But during that time, evidently Judas left, and he went to say, okay, now's the time, and let's get him. Okay? But before Judas returns, Jesus and the other disciples leave the upper room. They go outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They go east. Uh, and actually, that evidently was his habit, that he would come, he slept out on the Mount of Olives to the east, there was Bethany, Bethpage, somewhere out there, and then he would come in in the morning and teach in the temple courts, and then at night he would go out, and we'd go out to the east to Mount Olivet. So when he did that, his route would go right past the Garden of Gethsemane. Basically, it's an olive grove, an olive garden. And Luke doesn't call it Gethsemane. He doesn't mention that. But we know that from Matthew and Mark's accounts. What Luke does say is, as was his custom. So evidently, Jesus did this ritually by habit, that on the, in the evening, on his way out, he stopped in the garden to pray and connect with his father. That's probably how Judas knew where to catch him. It might have been the fact that Judas brought the guards back to the upper room, but Jesus and the disciples already left. And so he says, don't worry. He always stops in this one garden and prays there. I know where we can get him. Let's go. And they show up there. Now, why does Jesus stop in this garden? Imagine what is going on in his life. There is incessant ministry. I know that term well. Incessant ministry. There's opposition. There's people trying to do gotcha questions. There's all these needs from the crowds. He's teaching all the time. And he knows he is about to become the eternal Passover lamb. There's a lot going on on Jesus. And in the midst of all that hardship, he knows he needs a prayer garden. What we see in that prayer garden is a couple things. One, it was a quiet, undistracted place where he could get alone and connect with his father, God himself. Secondly, it was a place where he could speak out loud in prayer. Evidently, he prayed out loud. The disciples were able to hear him. That's how we know what he prayed. And then thirdly, 
It was a place where Jesus could be real and raw and honest and intimate with his Father in heaven. All right? Now, I think we need a prayer garden because life is hard for us too. It's not a fair comparison. You're not the Messiah. Neither am I. Literally, the weight of the world was on Jesus' shoulder in that moment. We don't experience that. But, let's be honest, still life is hard on us. Shoot, we're going through this pandemic and this lockdown, this COVID-19 thing. I said at one time that it's almost like, you know how sometimes you have a fight with your spouse in the morning, but then you got to go to work and you don't clean it up? And it just kind of hangs in the atmosphere around you all day long till you get home and hopefully don't fight some more, but clean it up, right? I feel like I'm living that way every day right now. This whole COVID thing hangs in the atmosphere and weighs on me all the time. I think you experience that too, I'll bet. And even without the pandemic and the lockdown, there's financial tensions, there's relational tensions, there are teenagers, which are just tensions, <laughs> walking around on legs, right? There's tensions there, there's laundry, like laundry is never finished, right? There's just life, and life is hard. And in the midst of that, you know what you need? You need a garden. You need a place where you can be quiet and undistracted and alone, where you can talk to God. You need a place where you can talk out loud to God. And then thirdly, you need a place where you can be real and raw and intimate with God. And I want to bump back through those real quick. Let's tackle that first one. When I say you need a garden, you need a place that is quiet and that is undistracted where you are alone. Maybe that's a room in your house. Maybe that's a particular chair in your house. Maybe you have... Younger children, and so some of you literally have a prayer closet that you go into and shut the door. For some of you, the prayer closet is called the bathroom because that's the only place where they'll leave you alone if you lock the door, right? So you need a prayer closet. Or for some of you, it's you have to leave the house. Maybe it's a coffee shop. I caution you. You're not so alone. Maybe you can work it out. For some of you, it's a park, a bench, a picnic table. For some of you, it's your car. Because you're alone and undistracted and you can talk to God. Some of you could pull over into a parking lot on the way to work or on the way home and just in your car alone in that parking lot, that can be your prayer closet. You need a place like that in your life. Jesus had it. You need it too. Now, one of the things you can do in that place is, secondly, you can speak out loud to God. Why? I, I, th I think praying out loud, has been, it's been so huge in my life. If you haven't tried it, I at least want you to try it. Because we get mental drift, right? Like we're praying along to God, squirrel, right? And it, we're, just, we're distracted by everything. And I find when I pray out loud, I more stay on track with God and I keep the mentality that I'm actually speaking to him. See, one of the keys of prayer is not to focus on prayer, but to focus on God. And I find that when I speak out loud to God, I maintain that more than I'm actually talking to God and he's actually listening. Which underscores the value of being alone because if you're at Starbucks and you're just talking out loud, people think you're crazy, they call the cops, it gets weird. So that's another benefit there. 
All right, third, I said you need a place where you can be real and raw and intimate with God. Do you see what Jesus is doing there in the garden? Did you catch it? He's not going flowery spiritual. Oh, my dear daddy God. God, you are so high and holy and lifted up and other and righteous and and you are omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. I want to just tell you, Daddy, this is so much fun. I love serving you so much and this is going to be easy. It's not what he says. He basically says this is hard. He's honest about it. You notice what God does in response? Does he say, suck it up, buttercup? Does he correct Jesus? Does he scold Jesus? No. He listens, he loves, and he sends an angel to strengthen him. He strengthens Jesus. Listen, you need a prayer garden in your life where you can do something just like that. In fact, I wanna, if you want to dig into this more, look at this page on our website, if you will. If you go to our website and you go across the top to resources and scroll down to grow spiritually and you click on that, then it will take you to this page right here. If you scroll down, you'll get to this Meet with God. There's tons of info on that page so that you can learn to have a prayer garden. You can dig into that later if you want, all right? Now, you need a prayer garden. Secondly, you need a submitted heart. You need a submitted heart. Jesus gives us the best example of prayer ever, absolutely ever. First, he is real and raw. He shares his desire. He's not hiding it. This is a passionate request. Father, here's what I want, please. But then secondly, right on its heels is an act of submission where he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Translation, God, you might say no to this. I know that and I'm totally okay with it because I trust you. After all, you are God. And Jesus submits. Did you notice in this case, the father said no. What? Yeah. Listen, God's not random. God's not winging this. He is up to something. And the result of God saying no to Jesus' prayer that the cup would pass from him, the cup didn't pass, it went right to Jesus. You'll see that in a bit. The result of God saying no to that prayer request is our salvation. Do you get that our salvation came as the result of an unanswered prayer? Another result is the glorification of Christ. Because he submitted to the Father and did the hard thing, therefore, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Glorification of Christ's results. But don't miss this. Still in that moment, it was hard. The cross was still going to hurt, like a lot, a lot. This is raw this is real. So that's Jesus' example. What about us, though? How do we get in on that? Listen, if the Son of God can submit to God the Father like that, how much more so do you think we should, right? What I want you to do is this. I want you to submit your requests to God. Then submit yourself. Submit your heart. 
Why? Because God is not your errand boy. He's not your butler. We obey God. He doesn't have to obey us. In the place of prayer, God might grant your request. In response to your prayer, he might say yes. But know this. Prayer does not change God. Prayer changes us. That's what happens there. It is a moment where we are brought into submission before God and something changes in your garden. You see, that prayer in the garden worked. Wait, wait, didn't you say God said no to Jesus? Yeah, but the prayer worked because Jesus, in obedience to the Father, entered a place of submission. The prayer worked. So my question for you is this. Can you say to God, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Let me help you tease that out a little bit. Ready? What if you were to pray to God and say, I don't want to. I don't want to watch my kids get sick and die. I don't want to see them be missionaries in a distant land. I don't want to reach out to my coworkers and neighbors and experience ridicule for my faith. I don't want to get cancer. I don't want to read my Bible and pray every day. I'm busy. I I don't want to give my money away generously. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to have a hard marriage. I don't want to fight the same temptation towards sin day after day again. I don't want to. And then here's the question. Can you next say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours Be done. Remember, God is not screwing around. He's not winging it. He's not random. He's up to something. He has a huge kingdom plan. And what if he has something amazing in store for your life? Now, it might really, really hurt a lot, okay? But he will equip you, and he will empower you, and he will even enter into your prayer garden and strengthen you in that moment. And he'll walk beside you and then take you on an amazing adventure. Not my will, but yours be done. Now yes, folks, yes, don't miss this. Yes, tell him exactly what's on your heart. Don't go super spiritual at first. Tell him, as a child tells a parent, here's what I want. Tell him with that kind of childlike honesty. But also know this. Before you even speak it, he already knows. You understand he knows everything. Matthew chapter 6 even tells us this, that it tells us not to heap up empty phrases, repetitious prayers like the Gentiles do, because the Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Think about it. Like if you go to Him and say, Dad, um, this COVID-19 thing is hard. In this pandemic, in this lockdown, I don't like it. And, And now, Father in heaven, there's murder hornets. Do you think in that moment, God's going to go, wait, what? Murder hornets? Why didn't one of the angels tell me about the murder hornet? Like, you think you're going to catch God off guard like he doesn't know? He knows. So then why pray? Why pray? Because prayer is not just about your requests. Listen to this. What if prayer is less about requests and more about relationship? What if it's less about handouts and more about your heart? What if it's less about stuff outside of you and more about stuff inside of you? 
So you see, what I want you to do is I want you to get alone with God in the garden. And I want you to engage with him, be real, cry out to him, tell him exactly what you want. And then after submitting your requests, submit yourself. That's the second thing I think we need to do. You need a submitted heart. All right, number three, what you need, you need a wake-up call. You need a wake-up call. So Jesus actually told them, he said, hey, pray that you might not enter into temptation. Now, if I walk a mile in the disciples' shoes at that moment, I'm like, uh, okay, uh, kind of weird, but all right, Jesus, we'll do it. Uh, I, Father, I pray that I would not be lustful, and I pray that I would not be prideful. Amen. Yawn, and they fall asleep because they're exhausted, and they fall asleep. Now, Jesus comes upon them and says, dude. Okay, now, some think that the temptation that he was telling them to pray against was the temptation to fall asleep. I don't think so. Seriously. Do you think God is going to be upset with somebody who's dead dog tired and falls asleep? How dare you? Like parents, you got young kids. They're exhausted and fall asleep. Do you punish them? No, that's ridiculous, right? That's not it. Here's what's going on. The disciples have absolutely no idea what all is about to go down. Jesus knows. He know, there's about to be a betrayal. There's going to be an arrest. Peter's going to pull out a sword and lop off a guy's ear. Kid you not, that's coming up. And then they're all going to scatter, and Peter's going to deny him. Others might deny Like It's about to go down, and they don't even know it, but Jesus knows it. And what he's saying is, guys, you are in the midst of a battle and you don't even know it. You need a wake-up call. Wake up. Wake up. They needed a wake-up call and so do we. Listen, you know those moments in your life when the world just crashes in and just everything just comes apart. And in that moment, you call out to God with desperation and dependence. Here's the thing. That moment is the most real moment in your life. That is where you get a glimpse of reality and you are on track with clarity in that moment. That's the moment of clarity. Before that, uh, you had an illusion, a mirage in your mind. See, you did not become desperately dependent in that moment. You already were, and you didn't know it. In that moment, you got a flash of clarity, and you figured out that you're in a battle, and oh my goodness, I need you, God. Right? Let me tease it out this way. What if Jesus came to you at the end of 2019? <laughs> right? And he came to you, and he said, hey, uh, you guys should really pray for God's help. And we'd be like, uh... Okay, sure, weird, but okay. Uh, God, we always need your help, so please help us. Amen. Yawn, and then we fall asleep. And we wake up the next morning, and it's 2020, people. <laughs> right? And listen, here's what I want you to know. You don't need God more in 2020 than you did in 2019. We were always this desperately dependent upon God. We just didn't feel like it. And in 2020, we got a wake-up call. And now we understand, right? Listen, our need is so much greater than we know. 
And we're always getting lulled to sleep by the world around us. But folks, listen, eternal things are at stake. We're figuring out in 2020, hell, hey, life is fragile. It didn't become fragile in 2020. Ever since the Garden of Eden, life has been fragile. And there's eternal lives at stake here. Like, like eternal destinies. The kingdom is on the march and the battle is real. We need to wake up, pay attention, open your eyes, keep watch. Don't miss what God is doing around you. You need a wake-up call. And then fourth and last, you need a Savior. You need a Savior. See, so far as we've looked at the Garden of Gethsemane, we've pulled out of this passage things that we can emulate. But there is part of this that is something that we cannot afford to emulate. And there's part of this that we can't even fathom. Let's get there this way. Jesus is sweating blood. What is that about? There's some science-y name for it that I don't know. I read it and I can't even pronounce it. But, uh, but basically, that when the human body is under extreme duress, or stress, or pain, it's rare, but it can happen that just that stress can burst little capillaries and, and that mixes the blood with the sweat and you actually can sweat blood. And that's what's going on with Jesus here. But Why? Is it because he was scared to die? Wait a minute. Jesus has been predicting his death for a long time all throughout Luke. And he marched resolutely with his face set like a flint to Jerusalem. He went right in. Just like Polycarp, he's saying, bring it on. We read that Jesus said that nobody takes his life. He lays it down. He's not scared of that. He's got courage. But what is going on? Look at this. Jesus prayed this. He said, Father... If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Hey, wait, time out. What cup? What is that cup? If you look through the out, uh, throughout the Old Testament, the cup symbolizes the wrath of God towards sin and sinners. Now, we don't like in our modern age to talk about God being wrathful. We're much more comfortable with the idea of, a, of an ooey-gooey God who is just love and butterflies and puppy dog tails and, and he's just merciful and, and forgiving. He's like, he's like an old grandfather that just wants to hug everyone and give everyone money. That's the God we like to talk about. The problem is there is a Bible. <laughs> and the Bible talks about uh, God is, yes, he's very loving and gracious. That's all true of him, sure. But at the same time, God is holy and perfect and high and lifted up and not like us, and he's righteous. And he has a burning anger towards sin. It talks about that. After all, sin is cosmic treason. It's mutiny, it's rebellion against God, and it must be punished. If sin is not punished, he is not holy. Which means God must be wrathful towards sin. He can't just wink and sweep it under the rug. He is holy. Listen, to help you understand, I want you to know Hitler was powerful. Hitler was loving. Now, what I mean by that is not he was like the super loving guy, but there were objects of his desire, things he loved and went after. The problem was Hitler was not holy. I want you to catch from that that just to be powerful and loving is not a good thing unless you are also holy. Our God is holy. He hates sin, and because of that, he has wrath towards sin. 
So you see, that cup is horrifying. It's horrifying. Can you imagine bearing the judgment and wrath that God has toward every sin from every human being, from every moment in history? It's all in that cup. Could you imagine drinking that cup? Here's how theologian Wayne Grudem put it. He said, yet to bear the guilt of millions of sins, even for a moment, would cause the great anguish of the soul. To face the deep and furious wrath of an infinite God, even for an instant, would cause the most profound fear. Jesus would swallow the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin, which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. And catch this angle. This is Jesus, the sinless one, who's about to drink that cup. He's known nothing but perfect holiness himself for all eternity. He's known nothing except perfect fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit for all eternity. You see, Jesus is facing something that no martyr ever had. Every martyr went through death to get heaven. Jesus is about to go through death in order to take our hell onto himself. Oh my goodness. And that's why he is sweating blood. Listen, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is doing the right thing, knowing the horror that you are facing. And that's what we see in Jesus in this moment. After all, folks, someone has to drink that cup. Don't miss this. Jesus said, Father, if possible, if possible, Daddy, is there any other way? No, son, there's not. No. Because of the holiness and the wrath of God towards sin, he can't wink and sweep it under the rug. It must be paid. And there's no effort on our part that can satisfy the wrath of God. There's no religion, including Christianity, that can help us satisfy the wrath of God. No amount of good deeds on our part. The cup will destroy us. It's either going to be Jesus or us. You see, don't forget that two weeks ago we looked at the Last Supper. That moment when Jesus turned Passover into communion. For us, it was two weeks ago that we read it. In the story, this is the same night. He went right out from that Passover meal, from the upper room, and he went right into the Garden of Gethsemane. This is right after it. And here's the point. We talked about the cup of communion that represents the gospel. You understand, we don't drink the cup of communion unless our Lord drinks that cup in the Garden of Gethsemane. Unless he drinks the cup of the wrath of God, we do not have communion, period. And so Jonathan Edwards put it wonderfully this way. He said Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath. And it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded, as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace, that he might look in and stand in and view its fierce and raging flames, and might see where he was going, and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners, as knowing what it was. But when he took that cup, then knowing what was in it, 
so was his love to us infinitely the more wonderful, and so was his obedience to God infinitely the more perfect. You see, you need a Savior who would drink that cup. You need him to do that for you. And Jesus, knowing what was in it, reached out, took hold of it, and drained it every last drop. We need him to do that for us. So what? What are we going to do with that? All right. First, I want you to quit trying to drink the cup. You can't. You won't. Your only hope is that Jesus did it for you. And he did, and he said, it is finished. Therefore, just worship the Savior. Just worship him. Now, with that behind us, I want you to get a prayer garden. Pour out your heart. Be real. Be raw with God. Submit your heart to God, not just your request, and then get a wake-up call that there is a kingdom mission and you are in a battle and there's a big picture. Get all of that. Get all of that. Now, what we're going to do next is we are going to worship Jesus because he went through a bloody, sweaty, dark garden and as the only one who could drain the cup, he grabbed it and drank it on our behalf. And he's the only one that could in all glory is his. In fact, let's pray right now. Father, thank you for our Savior. Thank you that he grabbed that cup and drained it for us. I cannot imagine. And Lord, I love when we, every month when we celebrate communion, I want to remember that the only way I get to drink the cup of communion is because he drank the cup of your wrath. Lord, thank you for our Savior. Would you therefore let us be people who run into a prayer garden regularly, daily, who submit our hearts to you and are woken up to the mission and the battle around us. Take us there, Lord, please. And I pray in Christ's name.